I think my dad's writing in the wake of finding out he wasn't my biological father, artistic stuff that was coming out of him, I think that was one of the major impetuses for wanting to make the film. Time has come. Catherine Bigelow! No, no, tu vas m'exciser là, t'es ouf? T'as pas le choix. Mais tu trembles! Growing up, I knew of Wonder Woman, but I didn't know much about her. I wasn't a big comic book fan. Not even worth state tuition, Christine. My name is Lady Bird. Uh, well, actually, it's not, and it's ridiculous. Call me Lady Bird, like Christine. you said you would. Just... Le César du meilleur scénario original est attribué à Denise Gamze Erguven et Alice Vinocourt pour Mustang. I just don't know what I'm supposed to be. I tried being a writer, but. <laughs> I hate what I write. We burn things, because war's the only language men listen to. Because you've beaten us and betrayed us and there's nothing else left. We're in every home, we're half the human race, you can't stop us all. And we will win. Hi everybody, welcome to the Film Otomy podcast. This is episode 44, which is a special podcast discussing films uh, of the past, the present and the future, all directed by women. I'm joined by two special guests today, which is really great. I'm, uh, it's an all-girls podcast. Yes. This must be the first time that we've had an all-girls podcast episode, so landmark moment. <laughs> so I'm joined by Joe. Hi Joe. Hello, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Excited about the chat. And also I'm joined by Kira. Hi, how are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Looking forward to this discussion? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh it's nice to be spilling the tea. <laughs> <laughs> so um do you know really much about the role of women in film, sort of early cinema at all? Um, I mean, a, a little bit. I studied film in, in uni, so we, we would have touched on it then. Um, it was funny when I was prepping for uh, speaking to you, the first person that popped into my head, who's obviously a little later, is Lenny Riefenstahl, which is obviously quite problematic <laughs> that she's the female filmmaker that come to mind um for like the obvious reasons um but she would have been the first sort of historical female filmmaker that I think I was made aware of when I was younger um so there's a lot to unpack there uh but going further back um I mean not really like you know it was the Lumiere brothers and George Méliès that was sold about and then that was sort of it obviously she shot Triumph the Will I think we all know Triumph of the Will is not the most politically correct movie you can watch nowadays but it is interesting that a female filmmaker made that. She was the first woman, well first film director to use slow motion and wide angle shots and that's still something that we see in cinema. What about you Kira? Well admittedly um, I suppose really I'm, I'm quite ignorant to pre-1970s you know I've touched a bit on some of the westerns from the 60s and whatever I had to watch for whatever I was learning about at school prior to that time but in terms of anything sort of beyond probably the 1960s at a push I've not really gone into it at all so not really aware of many men at that time let alone the women which of course as 
I came to discover when I was doing some research for this, so I didn't come into this looking completely thick. <laughs> you know, it, it became quite clear to me that whilst filmmaking was was very much it, it was in its very early stages, way way before you know sort of the period that I'm on about, to be a woman around at that time and sort of trying to break into that sort of industry when really society's only starting to consider you to have a place outside of the home at that point it's quite hard to come by and to be fair until i started studying film at university i wasn't aware of any sort of female filmmakers prior to you know catherine bigelow you know and that's yeah. like 80s <laughs> 90s but of course i knew all the sort of male directors you know as the people who created cinema but you know the the filmmaker Alice Guy Blanche she was working around at the same time as you know all these men and she made over a thousand films a lot of which have unfortunately been lost you know due to just how badly films were sort of looked after and you know the fact that they were made out of uh, highly flammable material and would catch on fire. <laughs> um, yeah. But the fact that she was making the, you know, films which are quite groundbreaking, you know, at the time. I think she made her first film in 1896. It's crazy to think that if you've seen the film, The Cabbage Fairy, which is her very first film, that's one with beautiful sort of sets, you know, beautiful costumes, and she's telling a story. So she sort of is recognising the importance of narrative cinema and, and telling a story, even though this is something that's a completely new medium. So I, I find it quite yeah. interesting, and the fact that it's not really talked about in this same sort of way. Yeah, it, it's shocking. I mean, you're right, she, she invented narrative cinema, you know? Like, she took what the Lumiere brothers were doing and said, hey, I think, you know, there could be more to this. We could actually, like, tell a story. That's um, my God, and... it's a revolutionary. <laughs> um, what I find very upsetting about um, Alice is that she lived a very long life. She only died in 1968, and she saw herself being written out of history, which... I just find quite heartbreaking. She was, you know, a pioneer of cinema. And then I read that she used to write to film historians correcting them um, on, on like facts and inverted commas uh, when they were documenting the history of cinema because she was like, no, I was there. I know what happened. And no one listened to her, which I just think is really sad. Yeah, I mean, she was the director of the oldest surviving film with entirely African-American cast. Why is that not talked about more often? I think it's important to note, though, um, if provided what I read was correct, um, that sort of between the period of 1896 and 1906, that it's thought that she was probably the only female film director in the world. I, I don't know. Obviously, you guys clearly know quite a bit more about this than I do, so you might correct me on this, but it's obviously shameful that, there is so little recorded about it as there is but for her to have pioneered this narrative style whilst being the only woman who let's face it at that point in time 
would have to have fought like twice if not three times as hard for only half as much as what men were allowed um i think for her to have been able to pioneer that and that still be basically what we go to the cinema for today to see these stories i think it's important and quite a landmark achievement that she she brought about what i read up as well was that she sort of saw the potential of of you know having narrative film and when she sort of proposed it to a a male director was was you know told that was a silly girlish thing to do Um, (laughs) which is of course women and their stories (laughs) yeah you know if she was making films like the life of christ which sort of featured more than 300 extras and 25 sets and i i think that was made in early 1900s so very early on almost like a a sort of turning point then you know with film becoming longer and narrative taking off and you suddenly see this sort of you know the D.W. Griffith type of film director coming along and it's almost like well you know it's a man taking credit for everything as per usual (laughs) yeah couldn't possibly comment (laughs) <laughs> tale as old as time yes yeah I don't know whether anyone else was aware also of Lois Weber at all I hadn't but um, from what I've told you I don't think that's much of a surprise uh, me, neither had I shamefully um, but uh, in doing a bit of a d- uh, dig into her she sounds completely badass I, I'm a big fan um, sounds good and I think she was she certainly, I don't know if they ever met, but from what I can tell, Lois Weber and, and Alice had some sort of a kind of professional relationship. I believe that Alice and her bear, her husband, sort of credit themselves with giving Lois her start in filmmaking. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but that's kind of part of the story that I read. So that's nice to kind of think that Alice was, you know, supporting other female filmmakers. I'd read the. Lois was a big believer in the power that cinema could possess and project on an audience and I think you know it's taken those stories and turned them into something that would have a profound impact on the people watching them so there's definitely I think influences and developments on you know what one another did. Yeah I find Lois really inspiring in a lot of ways Uh, the fact that she's was the first uh, woman to direct a, a feature-length film in America, which was uh, The Merchant of Venice, 1914, which is incredible. And she was the only woman elected to the Motion Pictures Directors Association. She was so sort of popular that she actually signed a contract with Universal uh, Studios, uh, which made her the highest salaried director in motion pictures. Can you imagine that nowadays? <laughs> I, I would hate to see the headlines. Like, just how condescending they'd be. I think uh, women have the burden of representation just in a way men don't. You know, yeah. if a man who had directed A Wrinkle in Time and, a, and it had flopped, people wouldn't be saying, oh, men can't handle big budgets. Yeah. 
So it's like every female director is representing every other female director, but also every other woman in film and every other woman in the arts and every other woman in the world. Yeah. And it's just a lot of pressure. And the fact that, you know, the women struggle to get, you know, second picture, you know, funded or, you know, third picture. And, and then one major sort of flop sort of sets them back and holds them back whereas I think men get countless sort of you know films have you know failing at the box office or just you know breaking even and they're still sort of then given another another chance really I mean there's been some dreadful films made by certain male directors but they still get work (laughs) yeah yeah. Michael Bay comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that guy who directed Batman and Robin. Wasn't that Joel Schumacher? Yeah. Oh, to be yeah. fair though, he has made some good films on the flip side of that. A Time to Kill was very good. It, it wouldn't matter if it was a woman, it, it'd be completely different. I mean, let's face it, men have done a lot worse things and make bad films in Hollywood and we're seeing them get yeah. Her yeah. chances, so you know. So it's it's amazing that you know in 1916 the highest paid woman, uh, highest paid director was a woman. At her peak, uh, Lois Weber was a household name on the le- same level as D. W. Griffin uh, and uh, Cecil uh, B. DeMille. But at the same time, those guys have uh, had their names sort of cemented with yeah. with history. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Got awards named after them. Yes. Where's her? Where is her award? Yeah. And again, W. Griffith was not a good guy. Another interesting thing about Lois Weber um, is that one of her films, I think, "Where Are My Children," was about abortion. I mean, people, you know, scurry away from making films about abortion now. The big thing that happens towards so in the twenties, um, where so these women, I think, were making films kind of into the 20s. And it was a decade of excess and people had disposable income and women were working. And, you know, it was, as you say, post-World War One, and kind of the world was right again. People were climbing, 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 climbing. And then what happens at the end of the 1920s, the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression. And suddenly there isn't as much money around anymore. And if men can't get work, well, then women definitely shouldn't be working it was actually written into american law as something called the economic act of 1932 where in certain cases jobs were taken off women and given to men and women were sort of pushed back into the home and then what you have happened in the 1930s which i'm sure we'll get into is you know women being um something to be seen on screen and not to be dictating what happens behind the camera it is a real shame because then you get into the 1930s and the 1940s and I really struggle to find anyone actually uh, any any women really not not directing but just doing simple things like screenwriting or you know mm-hmm. editing there was just women were in front of the camera not behind yeah. it but I suppose there were still strong women in the 1930s, you know, working in the industry. 
don't know if we're going to talk about um, Dorothy Arsner, but one of the, the few female uh, directors who was working uh, in the 1930s. And she was, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the first female director to be become part of the DGA. And she, yeah, directed Clara Bow's first, first talkie. And I don't know if it's because of Clara Bow's kind of uh, talking issues, but she invented the mic boom. See, this is amazing. Like, w- women invented narrative cinema, uh, invented the mic boom. Dorothy as well, I know I wasn't aware of this until I sort of looked into her, but was quite an important character uh, in, in queer cinema. Um, she was a out lesbian, from what I can see, and a lot of her films are sort of lesbian under or overtones. I don't really know. I have, fortunately haven't seen any of them. Um, but so that's interesting too. I think, again, it's sort of the representation thing. I mean, to be a female, female lesbian sounds like an oxymoron, but a gay woman, gay woman filmmaker at that time, I mean, that's kind of been easy. She was really sort of the only woman up until uh, Ida Lupino who was, you know, working behind the camera. Did you know about her, um, Ida Lupino? Yeah, I hadn't heard of her until, uh, you know, my little bit of homework. But after reading what I did read about her, I have to admit I'm a fan now, just hearing what she did. Everything that I was reading, she was described pretty much as a pioneer, um, as a lot of these women seem to be described as. The fact that she kind of had to fight tooth and nail for the roles that she wanted, whether it be wherever on a film set, they might be you know she had to fight for them you know she really really made an effort to break out of positions that she thought were beneath her talent and she literally she did whatever she had to do so she wanted to make films with an impact and she would literally shoot on the streets of LA for hardly any money whatsoever and then she would work to distribute the films herself that shows some real dedication to the cause, not only for herself, but also for what she effectively set up for independent filmmakers. Yeah, I think Kira's really hit the nail on the head there. Uh, kind of said, you know, she had got some conviction. And my favourite story about her is that she, so she started as an actress, and when she was 17, she had her contract at Warner Brothers suspended because she refused a role that she believed was beneath her. A 17-year-old girl with that level of, like, yeah, conviction and guts and strength of character, I was like, she knew what she was about and she wasn't compromised for anyone and good for her. Some of her, you know, her films are on on YouTube, so you can go watch them and they're really entertaining you know the hitchhiker is a really sort of good noir and it was all shot on location not many uh directors were shooting on location in like 1950s so before french new wave or anything like that so amazing stuff unfortunately ida really didn't have much of a career into the 60s and i think the 60s and the 70s is, is also a very interesting period. This is a real blind spot for me. Whilst we're sort of stepping into territory where I have actually seen films from the period now, it's uh, it was all very male-centric films. I, I suppose we, do, we don't see anyone in terms of 
certainly working in, for the studio system, you know, for mainstream. Yeah. I suppose we've got Agnes Varda. It really warms my heart that Agnes Varda is like more popular now than she's ever been. So yeah, does. The 60s and the 70s were not a good time, <laughs> even though women were becoming, you know, more liberated during that period. You would think that Hollywood would have sort of capitalised on that. I don't know. Yeah, especially in 1970s, you know, we have second wave feminism like kicking off and then just a severe lack of female representation on film. So there's this massive divide between kind of social movements. Um, and then, you know, we have, like, the um, male gaze, like, that term being coined and sort of popularised. What about the 80s? It was the age of the muscle man, wasn't it, the 80s, I think? Yeah. We, we do have Barbara Streisand directing um, Yentl in the uh, early yeah. 1980s. Obviously, that's sort of different because it's Barbara Streisand, so she's already a name. I'm saying that, Barbara, I'm sorry if you had a tough time making it. I really don't know. But again, you know. In that sort of period of the 80s that there wasn't very much in terms of independent cinema. You know, I think we begin to see towards the end of the 80s is when we see things picking up for women. And into the 90s, the emergence of some really well big films directed by women, you know, um, Point Break. Yes. Uh, Wayne's World. The Piano. Yeah, as you say, you, we have the emergence of, you know, the Catherine Bigelows, the, the Jane Campions, um, you know, Sally Potter. The sort of, I, I'm not a massive fan of the term auteur, and I don't think they really call themselves that, but, you know, like the bigger name directors that kind of have instant recognisable um, names in a way that they wouldn't have had in the decades before. Nora Ephron, uh, people like that. Um, so yeah, it was an exciting time. Uh, I was a baby, but I would—I could imagine—I would have absolutely loved to have been sort of a, you know, girl in my late teens, early twenties in that time. I think it's—it's it's definitely where we sort of—I say that we, <laughs> like I'm one of them. It's definitely a point where we saw women make their way into the big leagues and sort of stay there. You know, they started making the films that were getting decent sized budgets and you know they were allowed to have control of them there are names that sort of cropped up in the 90s that are still around now clearly careers didn't end off the back of one film and i think we started to get more varied female characters in the 90s as well you know there'll be a podcast on jodie foster's bit for women in film in sort of 20 years from now if we're still doing podcasts then i mean i don't know probably like holograms and all that um yeah you know we kind of get to see her she you know becomes sort of the iconic clarice starlin in um silence of the lambs and thinking about it all she she kind of represents in a way some of the character traits that we've discussed already here you know she sort of punched above her weight and she fought to get to a position in that film and you know she probably went out of her depth at times but she you know knew what it was she wanted to do and that was the way she had to go about doing it and I think she kind of represents what women have had to do throughout history in order to get what they want in that film yeah if you really pick it apart well we do see like a lot of women who make great films during this period but then 
they make one or two films and then that's it and then they have a huge gap until their next movie i think of you know the piano and uh films such as um boys don't cry as well like consider patty jenkins you know she directed monster which i think was early 2000s and the next big film that she went on to make was wonder woman you know that only came out last year that's a huge gap i know that she's been working in tv a lot during that period but you know yeah Monster was a really good film. It won Oscars. Yeah. Uh, Mimi Leader is another good example of that. Um, so she, you know, she had deep impact in kind of the late 90s. And then, you know, as you say, kind of went to TV. And she has On the Basis of Sex coming out at the end of the year or early next year. But that's a massive gap as well. And, you know, she was a well-respected kind of high, you know, medium to high budget director. And then just sort of disappeared and there is a certain element of kind of being banished to television um which i don't say sort of dismissively because i'm a massive tv fan and tv is a lot different now than it was in the late 90s yeah um but it's like oh okay you can come back now you've sort of done your time on the lesser become as medium yeah yeah Yeah, whereas if it was a man you know and he'd won oscars yeah I, i think fair enough like Oscars films, they don't always make the biggest profits, do they? And it's it's clearly a question of money here, I think. But I think if it had been a man, it'd have been very different, you know. I mean, fair enough, the superhero films kind of they weren't the big thing, but if you know, let's say whatever the equivalent of the superhero films was back in those days, um, you know, He'd won Oscars and then it'd been like, oh, such and such is in talks to direct this franchise or, mm. you know, and, you know, with the women, it just seems, oh, they've won the Oscar, right, great, go and direct TV for a bit and we'll call you back in 20 years' time. Yeah, yeah and I think, <laughs> I, I think as well, it's like, um, I'm so glad that the, the women kind of stuck it out as well. Um, you know, yeah. like Lynn Ramsey, you know, she had a huge gap between sort of, uh, uh, she had Rat Catcher that came out in 99 and then um, Morven Color that came out in 2002. And her next film was, you know, uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin in 2011. That's like yeah. A really lengthy gap. But then she came back with one of the best films this year, you know, uh, You Were Never Really Here, which has gained such critical praise both 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 of those films you know rat catcher and uh you know we need to talk about kevin really received quite a lot of praise and um interestingly they're not films about women yeah yeah that's what i find really interesting about lynn ramsey um as i'm actually wearing my lynn ramsey t-shirt at the moment that's what i think too like her films aren't kind of obviously women's films like that's obviously a very general kind of throwaway uh, term but you were never really here which I completely agree with you I think it's one of the best films I've seen this year and I can totally see it kind of remaining in my top 10 it's, it's an incredibly violent film and I even me saying that I, I there's obviously something in my mind that's saying well a woman can't direct that level of violence or can't be sort of a part of that um, violence which is obviously like you know that's kind of ingrained in me that's coming I, I've societally learned that but why why not you know yeah. um, 
being a woman is an inherently violent experience, I think. Um, you know, from everything from our bodies, <laughs> birth, me, you know, uh, the female, but the cisgendered female body bleeds a lot. Um, you know, we take razors to our bodies, we puncture holes in ourselves, you know, there's we burn our hair, you know, it's a like violent existence. But yes, yeah, yeah, hair out of our skin, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's everything like that. Um, um, yes, I mean, when I saw you were never really here, I was like, oh, you know, it like took me, I was shocked at the, the violence. So it's an interesting dichotomy. Well, um, when you sort of mentioned women directors shooting violence, the first thing that came into my mind is American Psycho and uh, yes. Aaron, who, yeah, which is a very male film, you know? Very much so. But I think it's made better because it's directed by a woman, because it's you know she's not glamorizing the the world of masculinity, but being critical about it and and can do that without being too close to being, you know, yeah. the, the the subject. I think she went on to direct the notorious Betty Page, but that was in two thousand and nine or two thousand a huge gap again and now she's in TV and it's it's a real shame because that's such a cult classic film you know yeah just on the American Psycho note something I was thinking about in relation to Mary Heron directing that is if you think about the role that a director takes and you know they are effectively in control of putting together that whole film you know they've got a vision for what they want it to be and it's their job to get people to carry out that vision and I know myself as a woman it can be difficult sometimes to get men to take you seriously when you're trying to do a job around them they like to think they know better and that you know they can just kind of shrug off what you're saying and do their own thing and I think although Christian Bale wasn't you know you know, he was pre-Batman at this point. So he, he perhaps wasn't as big a name as he perhaps, you know, is today. He doesn't carry as much weight. Um, he's always been someone who's had a bit of a fiery temper, I think. And he's not afraid to, you know, speak his mind on occasion. And I think for Mary Harron to go in there and get the performance from him that she did which arguably made him Batman, I think that's an achievement in itself. You know, she wasn't afraid, you know, to take someone like Christian Bale, who can be a bit of a diva at times, I think. Um, you know, she's she, putting she, it nicely. Yeah, she could get him to do what she wanted. You know, I have every belief that he gave us the Patrick Bateman that Mary Harron had in mind. Well, where do we see the future of female filmmakers going? That is a very good question. Because, <laughs> I, you know, before this whole conversation, I was thinking, yeah, do you know what? We're not doing too badly at the minute. We're, we're not doing anywhere near as well as we should be doing, but we're not doing too badly. But, you know, we've gone back 100 years with this conversation. I kind of think, do you know what? Bugger all has changed, really. <laughs> when you break it down the difference that has really been made in proportion to you know what men have done 
I think it's it's very minute, really. The whole perception of women in film, it, it needs to change, you know. We're obviously saying it ironically, but this whole idea of, you know, studios taking a risk and, you know, this whole concept of female stories, women's stories, it's great that we're talking about them, but we shouldn't be referring to them as women's stories. Mm. You know, I yeah. think the whole perception we've got of women in film is it's just messed up because it's it's creating a separation of the two things you know it's it's almost as if women is a genre and it 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 segregates in a way you know the two things need to be married together i'm not saying burn every film that men have ever been part of but you know we 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 need to we need to clearly balance the scales we have a long road to that, but I think inevitably, like, that, that is achievable. It's just sort of uh, evening the playing ground, uh, playing field. Um, <laughs> if, if that means that women sort of have to stick to, you know, again, women's stories, inverted commas, that until it is even, then I think that's probably where we're stuck for, for a little while. I think of two upcoming films, this kind of award season with... Um, Mary Queen of Scots, directed by uh, theatre director Josie Rourke. And again, yeah. they were mentioned on the basis of sex uh, by maybe Leader. And when I began thinking about those two films, I mean, they're actually quite similar um, in story. Now, I've not seen either of them, but, you know, just from the trailers and from what I know, both based on true stories um, of women in kind of men's world who had to fight against sort of the um, biases against them because of their sex to sort of achieve equal footing to men. You know, I'm, I'm describing both films there. If they have to be kind of spearheaded by women filmmakers to maybe lend a kind of level of authenticity or to just, yeah, have another layer to that, then I think, as I said, that's probably where, where we're at for now. And, of course, we've got Wonder Woman 1984 coming out next year. Yes. So looking forward to that. And the fact that... Patty Jenkins is um, directing it again, you know, is amazing because um, I think the the lady who directed Twilight, but the fact that that mo- money then went on, uh, that movie went on to make lots of money, they didn't hire her for the next yeah. film. Catherine uh, Hardwick. There's so many more films that, you know, have been directed by women. I hope people sort of go to the Filmotomy website and, and check out because you know there's there's films on there that you won't realise were directed by by a woman. So you know uh, that just goes to show you how important like good they are. It do- you should reach a point where it doesn't matter if the director's a woman or a man. They just you know they're just good movies. But thank you both for joining me today. Where can we find you? Not in, a, not in a creepy oh. way. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, my full address. <laughs> um, I am on Twitter most days at J underscore Gainey, which is G-E-A-N-E-Y. Uh, just kind of shooting the breeze about film and all things like that. So, yeah, come say hi. Uh, yeah, you, you can also find me on Twitter uh, at Film and TV 101, although, admittedly, a lot of the talk on there at the minute is distinctly filmless um yeah I, I do a lot of moaning on twitter 
but I'm a woman it's what I'm supposed to do apparently so but thank you both so much for joining me I really appreciate it it's so great and like I say it was amazing to be able to do this podcast with, you know two women because I, I was just like no we can't have it, it just me and two other men because <laughs> that would just be hypocritical <laughs> it, it would be a bit meta I suppose. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, it's like I do. We do have a few women writers on our site, you know. But um, when it comes to the podcast, mostly it's it's the guys, and I, I really love talking to them. They're all wonderful. They're really great. But you know, I this is this is our moment. 